0: me uh let me just mention this coming wednesday and the next several wednesdays ben will be dealing with uh the attributes of god several of the attributes of god so you can pray for him as he makes preparation as mary and i'll be traveling uh on vacation this week and um so that's coming up next sunday mike nye will be here october the 22nd so that that gives you something to look forward to and a change of pace i guess for me for a break Um, but um, pray for him as he makes preparation. I'm thankful he's willing to come and minister to us and minister to you. If you have your Bibles, open them up to John chapter number 12, John 12. If you're visiting with us this morning, we've been going through a study in the gospel of John here on Sunday mornings. Uh, And if you're planning on traveling south anytime, which I know some are uh, soon, Uh, And many uh, days ahead, Um, you can catch up on any of the current series that we're going through on our website or podcast or or YouTube. uh, If that is helpful for you, that's there for your benefit and and for your use. Uh, And you can speak to one of the guys in the back or Mary who can help you out with all that technical details. John 12. Follow along with me as I begin reading in verse 27. Now my soul is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. The crowd that stood there and heard it said that it had thundered. Others said, Ah, an angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered, this voice came, for your sakes, not mine. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So the crowd answered him, we have heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. How can you say the Son of Man must be Lifted up, who is this Son of Man? So Jesus said to them, The light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light, and you may become the sons of light. That is God's infallible, inspired word. Amen. Well, from the very early pages of your Bible, uh, if you're familiar with the Old Testament, you are uh, you're aware of this distinction between light and darkness. Uh, You see it not only in the created order, but you see this this growing reality of of truth versus error, evil uh, and good or one kingdom versus another kingdom, the kingdom of God Versus the kingdom of the evil one or the kingdom of this world. It's seen in the very seed of the gospel in Genesis 3.15 and I'll read that for you. When God says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. And he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. So there should be no surprise that after we read Genesis 3.15 and as we follow the hand of God among the nations working in the world, particularly with the nation of Israel, that wars and, and covenant infidelity and uh, bondage and violence mark the whole Old Testament. From the very beginning of of Abraham being called out uh, and set apart to be used by God to the murder of infants under Pharaoh, The bondage of slavery, wars leading all the way up to the captivity uh, under which Daniel lived in Babylon. The Old Testament story is in some ways a, a story of that constant conflict between the will and way of God and in one way between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of darkness. And no doubt if you were an Israelite living in the days of Jesus, you would lean to the hope and the promises of God that one day he would send forth a king that would that would that would break the bonds of of the grip of this dark world and the nations. In fact, what you find over and over in in the Old Testament, it almost seems as if the the current status of the nations and their violence and their idolatry and the wickedness has almost put out the light altogether. Now, you and I live in a world that is mirroring that, and we have always lived in a world like that, but with moments when wars rage and we're witness to that, it reminds us, and we can almost think, Apart from the Bible, is there any hope of goodness left? When you live in a nation, not only the war that's going across the seas, but when you live in a nation when all decency and order, and what we might have said in one way, uh, humanity or the goodness of humanity has slipped away and all you see confronted day in and day out is wickedness and violence. As the godly perished off the face of the earth. Has the light been swallowed up by the darkness? Like the dream Pharaoh had, you know, the seven good cows, and then he had seven pale cows that come along and just kind of eat it up. Well, well we know our Bibles, don't we? We come to be reminded of the uh, daylight today uh, that God will prevail. God will prevail. A friend of mine used to say, uh, quoting his mom quite often, was, um, "Truth will stand when the world's on fire." Any of your moms say anything like that? You could write a book on the quotes that moms have, things that moms have said. But I think that is true. It's true because what we see and, and what we what we are promised, what's taught to us, is that good and bad are not balanced out as some pagan ideas and notions about how the world works and the universe works. While you see in the Bible a, a tone of conflict and the reality and the the, the presence of violence in this world and, and the kingdoms of this world and real threats and dangers and all of that, Satan is not equal to God. His kingdom is not absolute. Uh, and his his plans, his plots, they all will fail in the end. And sometimes we, we barter with that notion that you have God being the chief good and Satan being the chief evil, and you have those two equal forces. But I want to remind you, Satan was created and Satan is doomed. And sometimes we need to be told that. There's three important caveats that we are told back in genesis 13 and or genesis 3 verse number 15 and that is this one the bruising of the heel that is the the messiah the bruising of the heel is not fatal how many of you ever bruised your heel it didn't kill you you're still here this morning it's not fatal but the bruising of the head is and that's what god promised at the very beginning Secondly, when you see Jesus entering into his ministry, he testifies to this reality we have to be reminded of, and that is Satan's kingdom is crumbling by the very fact that he cast out devils. Mark chapter number one, verses twenty-four through twenty-seven, confronted by one possessed by a devil, he told him to shut up and come out. And guess what happened? The devil shut up and he got out, reminding us that the kingdom of this world. Was crumbling is crumbling the third thing I would say is just the very principle of the nature of light and darkness in John chapter 1 verse number 5 turn with me it's not a very long journey for you John chapter number 1 I just want to read verse 4 and 5 in him, he's speaking of this eternal word, and we know this eternal word is Jesus Christ. If you're not familiar, you can jump over to verse 14 and make those connections together. In him was life, and he was the life, or and the life was the light of men. There's something significant about the light in verse number five. Light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. And some translations may say darkness has not comprehended it. It's not necessarily what he means by comprehending. It isn't that the darkness does not understand it. It is that the darkness does not conquer it. Cannot stand against it. In fact, we know that just in, just in the general way God created the world. When you walk into a dark room, you turn the light on. And guess what happens to the darkness? It goes away. And so by the very nature of God sending His Son into the world, it reminds us that, that darkness never removes the light. It never overwhelms it. It never conquers it. In fact, darkness only spreads and thrives where light is absent. It's a good reminder for us, isn't it, church, that He says we are... A, A city on a hill, a lit city on the hill. We're the light of the world. Now, I know Jesus is the big light, but he reminds us as a church that we are to be a light in this dark age. And in fact, as dark as it gets, or the darker that it gets, the more profound and more clear the light is seen. And so I want to just assert to you this morning as we come to John chapter number 12, that the prevailing plan of God is secured by God himself against all earthly powers, against demonic forces, and all opposition. In fact, Psalms 2 testifies to that, doesn't it? As our men are trying to learn on Sunday or Friday mornings, that the nations are raging, the people are plotting in vain, the kings of the earth set themselves, rulers take counsel together against the Lord and His anointed. And what does God do? How does God respond? He laughs, doesn't He, those of you who know it. But then He sets His king on His holy hill. And chapter 12 begins in John with the celebration of the king of Israel. And I consider chapter 12, verse 27 through 36, really the the campaign of the king. He does not enlist his subjects to fight a battle that they cannot win. Rather, he dons himself with the equipment, with the necessary things required to win the battle that is set before him. He moves towards the enemy. And that is a good reminder this morning for us. Our victory is found in his victory, as we will see in this passage. Now, notice with me in verse number 27, the Uh, this campaign, which is what I've referred to it as, his conquest, his campaign. He is coming, moving towards conquering. And and it's first a campaign of glory. Verse number 27 begins with, now my soul is troubled. And uh, we've seen that word already when he was standing at Lazarus' tomb. It's that word of deep agitation, maybe taken of anger or Or sorrow or a mixture of all of that is one of those words of he he was emotionally moved. One commentator said it was like he was in shock of trauma. Came upon him. And it is through the providence of God leading these Greeks to him. And I would say everything Jesus faced this Passion Week was a glaring reminder of what Friday, Saturday and Sunday had in store for him. And so seeing the Greeks coming to want to listen to him, to talk to him, uh, it, it brings back this reality of what he would face. A sort of dread. I think that could be fair to say that. We know that he despised the shame of the cross and all that it would entail for him not just the physical aspect of that but the literal god accounting him as the worst and chief of all sinners and treating him accordingly but we know that jesus was truly human he was he he had a human uh, he had a human nature and in that and being divine the author of life he says in john chapter number 1 he was not looking at his death with with joy he was looking what his death would would purchase with joy, but not his death itself. He loved life. He wasn't one going around wondering if today will be the day, or I hate living, I, I hate this, I hate this mud ball with water on it. He wasn't saying any of those things. He loved life. And the one who loved life and experienced life to its fullness without the effect of sin is about in contemplating his own death and death and bearing sin and the abandonment of his father. And so how does he respond? Well, we know he responds with a a deep sense of trouble, a moving of his spirit and his soul. But but we see this, secondly, not only how he responds in that way, but we see him moving moving towards it, not away from it. It's a contrast of Psalms 6, when the righteous cry to God for help and for deliverance. here the righteous the true righteous one does not ask for deliverance or help notice his words my soul is troubled and what shall i say father save me from this hour almost an idea of psalm 6 and he says but for this very purpose i've come to this hour father glorify your name he knew the very purpose of his existence Luke reminds us somewhere in the midst of his ministry as Jesus was growing more and more popularity people flooding him wanting things from him that he set his face towards Jerusalem like a flint nothing would move him distract him from his mission the cross we understand is not option B or option C it was his his first and foremost plan This is not a failed evangelistic campaign. It is a fixed destination for the Son of Man. And at the weight of it all, at the sorrow and the heaviness of it all, at the emotional upheaval of his own human soul and spirit, he walks towards it saying, for this very purpose, I have come into the world. I'm just reminded that we don't serve one who shrinks back from difficulty How encouraged we are to take our troubles when we face them, because He is strong, full of courage, and determined to see it through. But notice what He says in this this moving towards the enemy. As we see, He says, "I have come to this hour, speaking of His death and resurrection. Father, glorify Your name." This is His petition. Do not. Don't deliver me from the hour, but glorify your name. Glorify your name in this hour. The cross would bring great glory to God. How is God glorified? What does it mean to glorify God? Well, we could say it in one way: it is an act or an event that testifies something to the nature or characteristic of God. We we see something going on, and through that event, through that happening, that God is seen clearly as the Bible defines Him. And so, in that way, God is glorified in that event. We we know that of creation, right? Psalms. 19 the heavens glorify god because they continually declare of his existence they declare of his power and his wisdom and, and those things continually it glorifies god and in many ways jesus had glorified god just by his mere existence and by his miracles and by his sermons by having compassion upon the multitudes he glorified god his whole life was was in An act of glorifying the Father. We see God even acknowledging that, don't we? Notice in verse number 28, in response to that, a voice, God speaking from heaven, I have glorified it. Past tense. What has he glorified? I have glorified my name through you. You have given me glory in all that you've done. And I will glorify it. Make no mistake about it. When he walks in, even in the darkest hour of his, his life, God will be glorified. Isn't that remarkable to think about? The glory of God in the darkest hour of human history. The son of God murdered by the hands of his creation. And yet it is during this dark hour that the most visible, the greatest vision of God is seen in all his varied attributes. No other place do we see the complexity and the depth of the character of God than we do at Calvary. In fact, as one Minister, as noted, it is here we see the inflexible justice and burning holiness of God as He exacts punishment and abandonment on His only begotten Son because He made Him to be sin who knew no sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. There you see, will God God give a pass on judgment? Is He truly holy? Is He truly righteous? Is He truly good? Is He a judge that will not be bartered with or will not be persuaded? Is He... Is he any of those things? Then we look to Calvary. When it is his own son who is the object of his wrath that he drinks the full dread of it. And God exacts the punishment required for the guilt of sin. But you also see there at the cross, don't you? Not only the cry of abandonment from the son, but also you see in the son himself and the fact we read John three sixteen that the father loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. And it is that the cross you see a depth of the love of God that you will never see anywhere else, whether in your own life, in your own experience or anywhere else in the word of God, that he would love you to that degree that what you see at Calvary is an act of his love for you. Jesus there, love, grace, and mercy, his long suffering and the giving of his only begotten Son, He will glorify Himself and glorifies Himself through the cross. It is a campaign of glory, but it's also a campaign of victory. He's not on a fool's errand. Jesus is not falling on his sword or or giving up because it just didn't work out. In fact, that's what we see here. As you read on verse 28, the Father glorify your name. I have glorified and will glorify and the crowd that stood there heard it and said that it thunder, others said an angel had spoken to him. Jesus said, the voice that came for your sake is not mine. Verse 31, now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. Here, Christ came to gain victory, not defeat. Don't you love the story of David and Goliath, for those of you who are familiar with it? He heads off to fight this giant. It's a ridiculous story, isn't it? I mean, even Saul's like, this is crazy. You're crazy. You're you. This guy's been fighting longer than you've been alive. It's a warrior. You're like, what are you, shepherd? And yet, when he runs towards the giant, what does he say? This day, (laughs) you're going to die to a giant. He moves into battle. David moves into battle against Goliath with a full confidence of God behind him to secure the victory. Here's God himself moving into battle. And make no mistake about it, as we see the outcome of this in his resurrection, he will win. He will win. This declaration of now. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. The decisive act which secured the victory over both is what we're to understand in this. Now notice first the victory in the judgment of this world in verse number 31. Someone has, has once said in the trial of Jesus. Under Pilate and the, and the Jewish authorities, they, they judged him, or at least thought they judged him. Guilty of blasphemy and condemned him. A sinner, son of a Samaritan, and all the other jeers and things they called him as he there, hung there on the cross. What the Bible says at that moment of Christ's death, burial, and resurrection was really a declaration of judgment against them. It was the cross which condemned them, rendered them guilty before God. They were the ones who rebelled against God. They were the ones that were lawless. They were the ones that were murderers and thieves and blasphemers. They were the ones that murdered the Son of God. They were the ones in their unbelief. In fact, that's what we saw in John chapter number 3, verses 17 through 21, light is coming to the world and some respond to that light by, and, and, and I would say even a large part of our society respond to the light of the gospel of Jesus Christ with, with unbelief. They reject it. And in that, declar- in that rejection, they, they bear the consequences of their own sin, the condemnation. This is the condemnation that light is coming to the world and men love darkness rather than light. It is the cross itself that is that is standing against them, exposing them for who they are. Yet there's others that respond to that light by coming to it, receiving it, by receiving the life that it provides for them. If I could say it another way, you will find the judgment of God met in Jesus on the cross, or you'll find condemnation and judgment by Jesus. In the last day. And it is the preaching of the gospel. The sharing of the gospel. And the response to the gospel. That brings that reality to surface. What have you done with Christ? What have you done with the gospel message? And those of you here this morning. Have never put your faith and trust in Christ. Where do you stand? Condemned outside of Christ. Or forgiven inside of him. Well, secondly, not only you see this judgment of this world, and there's more, the the outcome of that, we'll see more of that when you read Revelation and his second coming when he judges all things on the last day. But you see this victory not only over the world, but victory over Satan himself casting out the devil. Now, theologians speak of now and not yet. How many of you ever heard that? It's like there's, there, you're children of God now. You're, now we're the sons of God. John says, but he has not yet revealed what we shall be like. We'll, we'll figure that out when we see him because we will be like him. And yet there is this reality in destroying and casting out of Satan's Revelation twenty ten, as he will put be put out and damned for all eternity. Amen. Accuser of the brethren. We're not missing the obvious. John says in 1 John 5, 19, the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. Jesus is not disagreeing with that statement. So we have to wonder, what does he mean when Jesus speaks of now the prince of this world is cast out? I want to give you three, three things that, that I think this could mean that may be helpful. The first is, it means that he is He is doomed that his outcome is settled. He has no power over God, no, no threat uh, to God, the prince of this world being cast out uh, through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. His end is secured. But secondly, and I got this from John Piper, who made a helpful comment Concerning this, his power and the weapons which he uses have been overcome and confiscated. That's what you do in war, right? You not only defeat the enemy, but you confiscate their stuff. Jesus confiscating the weapons and overcoming the weapons of the enemy. Hebrews 2.14 says this, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil. So what does he mean by that? How does he have power over us, power over death, the devil? Which John Piper notes, and I'll quote him, he stripped Satan of the one weapon that he had that could damn us. Well, that's interesting. What does he mean by that? Well, he goes on to say, namely, the valid accusation of our unforgiven sin. The weapon that is taken from his hand, he is disarmed. We have no unforgiven sin. The blood of Jesus covers our sin, all of it. So what is John saying there that is helpful to us, explaining what John the Apostle is saying? We say in Satan being cast out, his device is his power over us. That is the accusations of our committed sins. He doesn't have to make stuff up. Sometimes I think we think that. We've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. How many does that include? All of us. And if he is that holy cherub that had fallen, he knows the holiness of God better than we do. And rightly how to accuse us. And yet Christ, through his death and resurrection, has rendered him perilous over the children of God because there is no accusation that can stand against us in the day of judgment because Jesus Christ paid it all. There is now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. The third way we see this played out, his defeat, is being cast out in the present moment, is his influence over the nations. You may be like, I don't see it. Well, at least in the realm of spoiling or, or taking spoil from the kingdom of the devil, Ephesians 2, 1, 3 says every one of us here was walking according to the prince and power of the air in our own flesh and lust. Mark 3.27 reminds us or Jesus referring to this accusation that he was working in the power of the devil. No one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed he may plunder his house. And that's exactly what the gospel is doing across the nations. The power of God working, spoiling the uh, the enemy's strongholds, whether it be Islam or Hinduism or Mormonism or whatever other ism you want to name the gospel taking root in the changing people's lives. Well, I want to just remind you this morning, church, just as a word of encouragement, Satan is a defeated foe. Do You get that? I know it seems dark, and I know things are difficult, and I know there's violence, and and you get sick every time you look at the world that we live in, uh, the immediate context and the broader context, but I'm just telling you what the Bible says, that he is cast out. He is defeated. Christ won and will win. He may tempt us. He may threaten us. He may cause havoc in this world and against the Lord's people, but he is not sovereign. Is on a leash and he's always been. He is not all-knowing. He is not all-powerful. More than that, again and again, we need to be reminded that his doom is sure and we have overcome him through the blood of Jesus Christ, Revelation teaches us. He is doomed and the world is judged. Now, let me just ask you, do you know that? Do you know that Christ... One, Do you know the victory, the campaign of victory which he, he secured and shared with us, his victory? What do you do when, when things are bad in your life and difficult and you, you feel like you're at the moment you can't deal with it anymore? Despair seems to overtake you and eclipse any glimpse of hope. Do you remind yourself that Christ is one? He is alive, seated at the right hand of the Father, ever making intercession for his people? or the moments when we find temptation is so powerful and the lie of our flesh is that you are without hope to change and to give this up or to pursue righteousness or have no power to overcome. Do you recall the reminder that greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world? How easy we buy the lies and forget the truth that in and of ourselves... We cannot do anything, Jesus said, but abiding in him and his power in us. Well, he sustains us. He encourages us. He brings victory and deliverance in our lives. Uh, You see, he is our king who has won the victory, not only for himself, but for us. The third thing I want to. Mention here not only the campaign of victory, the campaign of glory, but the campaign of deliverance. Notice verse 32 with me. Let me read verse 31 again. That's so good to have right in our minds, isn't it? Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. Isn't that a beautiful statement? He doesn't say when John or when Tom or when Bob is lifted up, he can draw all people to me. No, this is something he's doing himself. He is securing it. Now, this image uh, is an Old Testament image we saw in John chapter number three is back in the days when Israel sinned against God, complaining and murmuring and God judged them and sent fiery serpents and a great deal of people died and in their and in their sorrow they cried out to Moses and Moses cried out to God have mercy on us and so God says okay Moses erect a pole in the middle of the camp of Israel and put on that pole a brazen serpent and anyone who looks to that serpent will live that has been bitten Uh, And there's so many implications that I'd love to take the time to just make the connections of that. But it is a reminder that those who who look to that fixed point standing above them would find life. And Jesus is saying in that that same way that, that he is that fixed point that is lifted up and any that look to him will live. Any who has been affected by sin, any who has the disease of death, any who is awaiting condemnation, any who finds himself in need and great sorrow, look to him and live, which just means all of us, any of all of us. And he mentions this, notice this statement that he makes here. When I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. Now, what are we to make of this? Well, there is some teachings in the New England area that teaches universalism. And basically, they teach that if they even deal with the death of Jesus Christ, it saves all people. Jesus is not mentioning that here. it's making no reference to that. In fact, nowhere in the Bible do you find that kind of idea. In fact, the warnings and the the call to believe and the sending out missionaries is useless if everyone is mentioned in this statement, I will draw all people to myself. Because we know that our world, by large part, lies in unbelief, don't we? That's why the job is so great. The task is so large in front of us, and while there is no time to uh, not to be about the Lord's business. So what does he mean when he speaks about all people? He's not speaking about all people without exception. I think we can see it this way. If you look around, even in this room here, you would see the fruit of the gospel in such a varied way that that's what he means. He tells us in Galatians 3.28, it, it, is, it is without distinction, neither Jew or Greek. There is neither slave or free. There is no male and no female. You are all one in Christ Jesus. And that is the emphasis As the Gentiles are coming and Jesus sees them. He's trying to say, the Gentiles, if I am lifted up, the Gentiles will come to me. If I am lifted up, the Jews that will believe will come to me. If I am lifted up, the the women will come to me. The slaves will come to me. The, The free man will come to me. All these kinds of people will come to me. And there is a reality earlier in the Gospel of John. On the one hand, God has given Jesus a people... That is in the realm of his divine sovereignty, and from our vantage point, from the immediate context of this passage, and just reminded: the drunk on the street, those given over to lust and greed and self righteousness, the proud and the atheist, atheists, the self reliant, the hopeless, the young, the old, those of you who are with children, those of you who are without children. All of you need the message of Jesus Christ, without exception. And the truth is, every one of us fit in one of those boxes, and we're all a testimony that God is no respecter of persons. And that is the glorious good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Not just to the Jewish nation, but to the nations, but not just to the nations, but to the people that make up the nations. All our greatest need is met through this one man, Jesus Christ, and him being lifted up. So if you're here this morning and you never put your faith in Jesus and you stand out. Side of Christ, wondering if God could really love me or if God could really forgive me or if there is a real need in my life to turn to him. Can't you just look around at the people in this room and, and see that there are people in the same boat or was in the same boat that you are that had found the grace of God more than sufficient to cleanse, forgive, to bring in, to give hope. But not just the people in this room. Think about the people you share the gospel with. The people in your family. There's no one standing outside the need of Christ. No one so far gone that Christ cannot redeem. So what do we do concerning this campaign of Jesus, King Jesus? This campaign of deliverance, this campaign of victory, this campaign of glory. Glory. Well, I would say this, just a few things very quickly in closing one. He makes a statement here in verse 32. He says, and when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. Now, lifting up here in the immediate context has the implication of what kind of death he would die. He's going to die on a cross. They would raise them on a cross. It would be off the ground a couple of feet and and there as a public spectacle, as a deterrence for for violence or rioting or whatever he was being crucified for, to the people so that all people walking by could see this event taking place and, and so be deterred in some way and fear Rome. And, and so he's saying being on this cross, held there, hung on a wooden cross, will be the means by which he draws all people. That's true. Okay? I'm diminishing that. that's what he says in the next verse, verse 33. But it also has this idea interwoven in this, of the exaltation of Jesus, the lifting up on a cross, but also the lifting up by the Father seated at the right hand, giving him glory and honor again. And so, there is, in a sense, if we look at this victory of Jesus and his campaign, ours is to exalt and lift up Jesus, not to crucify him. That's already taken place. We share the gospel. We magnify Christ. We we make much of Jesus in our day to day speak and, Speech and week after week in our services together. That's what we should be doing, making much of Jesus, lifting Him up, exalting Him. That's what we support around the world. We like all kinds of stuff. We like shoebox stuff. We like being kind and, and generous and those things. God, people ought to always be that way. But in the end, our greatest delight and desire and that joy is that Jesus would be made much of. Amen? That's what people need to see, is Jesus. They don't need to see me, they don't need to see you, they need to see Jesus. And then they need to see Jesus through you, and through me. The second thing I want to say, concerning this, just because of the day and age we live in, there is an element as a church, that we lament. If you can't turn on your TV, or read the news, and be filled with anger, and and sorrow, and pain by what you see, then something's wrong. You're not human. Something's wrong with you. Go see somebody and and get that worked out. Because it's sad. Sin is destructive. It's cruel. It's, It's inhumane. It's ungodly. And yet we lament with hope. You know what I mean by that? We lament with the reality that everything wrong, God will one day set right. And that while we don't see his hand oftentimes in society and the events of human, uh, human existence in the, in, the, in the nations as they move, rest assured God is in control. God is sovereign and, and Jesus won the decisive battle and the victory. So we lament with hope. We lift up Jesus. We lament with hope. Thirdly, we rejoice and long for better days. You say, How can you rejoice when when you see all this stuff going on? How do you rejoice? Well, Jesus told his disciples the secret to that when in the high point of their ministry, and I, I would I would just take it. That if it was good when you're on the top of things, it's good when you're on the bottom of things. You get that? So they're casting out demons. They come back. They're rejoicing. They're happy. Look what we can do. I mean, they obeyed us. Isn't that cool? And Jesus says, I'll tell you something what to rejoice about. That your names are in the book of life. And if you've ever been born again, you've always got reason to Rejoice to praise God that your sins are forgiven, that the haunting and the accusations and the condemnation which was once yours has been taken by our great King, Sovereign Lord. But even in that rejoicing, doesn't it make you long for heaven and better days? Some of you have company, friends, family you haven't seen in a long time. They visit in some ways you're like, I'm glad the week's over. No, you don't say that. (laughs) Don't you wish this would never end? How much more when we see the world upside down, shouldn't the people of God long for? And you know what? If you long for that, doesn't it in some way motivate you to strive for that even now? To work to that end? To live according to that? And that's what I would say. Fourthly, not only do we rejoice and long for better days, we lament with hope, we exalt Jesus Christ, but fourthly, we walk in the freedom of the victory He has won for us, namely your sanctification. He did not save you to keep you in bondage to the devil, but to deliver you. And so that through the power of God in you, the Holy Spirit, and through the promises and the declaration of the gospel you might war, that holy warfare in your life. Well, church, pray with me. Father, we thank you for this day that you have given to us. This morning we can gather together. Lord, you are good. and Your kingdom endures forever. And the world will pass away. Nations of the earth will will all crumble. The, The heaven... And the earth itself will be purified by fire. But you and your word, your work will remain forever. And we are brought into that, your work in us. And so we just praise you for that. I pray that you would help us to be reminded, to be a people, encouraged in in our great king and sovereign Lord Jesus. God, I pray for those here this morning, if any do not know you. God, even now, that they would raise the white flag and surrender. God, that they would bow the knee, or as the psalmist said, kiss the son, lest he be angry. Lord, that they would find the mercy and compassion of the Lord great in this moment. And Lord, help us all to be resolved, to be encouraged, to rejoice in Jesus' name. Amen.